friends, let us now listen to Brother Mel Caparos, pastor of Living Word Christian Churches of Cebu International. God's Word. Uh, let's go to James chapter 1, verses 9 to 12. I'd like to request everyone to rise. Let's honor God's Word together. And at the count of three, let's all read together aloud, all right? One, two, read. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let us pray. Our Father, we just give you thanks and praise for this morning, O oh God. We thank you for your goodness and love which we could exalt in and which we can rejoice in. And we thank you, O oh God, that you are the sovereign and powerful God. And we thank you, Lord, that in spite of the fact that our nation is facing a critical crisis, we know that you are in control, we know that you are sovereign, and we know, Father, that you will only accomplish that which is good for our country. If there is something we would like to pray for, let this be a wake-up call to all Filipinos. First of all, to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. May our nation and may our people recognize that the only answer to our nation's problems is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, that there will be an acknowledgement everywhere in this nation. Let every knee, let every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And right now, we also pray for our soldiers who are fighting in Marawi and elsewhere, we pray, Lord, that you might keep them safe. As they try to secure our country, we pray, Father, that your guardian angels will be with them. Protect the civilians as well who are now being used as human shields. And we pray, Father, that they, together with everybody else, might come together to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, once again, we pray for your sovereign rule upon our country. We pray that you might raise up more intercessors and prayer warriors in our country. And Father, wake up your churches. Let there be a spiritual revival taking place among all churches. And today, Father, as we study your word, we pray that you will open our spiritual eyes, you will open our minds, and you will open our hearts. And may Jesus be exalted in our midst as we ask the teaching ministry 
of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's be seated in the presence of the Lord. <clears throat> I've entitled this morning's sermon, The Riches of Poverty and the Poverty of Riches. Now, in this world that we are living in, a lot of people are saying that poverty is equal to being miserable. And they would say that if you are prosperous or you happen to be rich, you are quite fortunate. I would like to say, however, that in so far as God's kingdom is concerned, in so far as the scriptures are concerned, that is not necessarily true in so far as God's kingdom is concerned. Poverty has its own riches, and riches has its own poverty. And that is something that I would like to be able to share to you this morning. There are actually three things that I see in this particular passage, so allow me to just once again show to you the outline of our study this morning so that you will not get lost in our study. Now, the first point I'd like to drive at is the poor man's glory. And where do we find that? Where do we find the poor man's glory? We find it in his high position, the high position of poverty in Christ. Now notice, I did not simply say the high position of poverty because there is nothing really lofty in so far as poverty per se is concerned. But if it is in, high, in Christ, then the poor man should glory in that high position. I will explain further what I mean by that. And then we will also be talking about the rich man's glory. Now, in this particular uh, subject matter, we will take a look at an understanding of one's fleeting life. And that is what the rich man has to glory in so that he would not put his trust in riches or in wealth. And then finally, as our third point, we will take a look at the rewards of the persevering man. And in this, we are talking about both the poor man and also the rich man as they persevere. And as they persevere, they will find two things. Number one, they will get the mark of God's approval and secondly, they will also receive a crown of life. So those are the things that we will be talking about this morning. So let's just begin with the poor man's glory as we discuss verse 9 to begin with. So let's take a look at verse 9 at this time. It goes, But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. Now, I'd like to remind you of the context of James chapter 1. James actually began with admonitions in relation to the trials that we go through in life. And James actually mentioned that we go through various trials in life in various degrees. And so that is the context that this particular passage comes from. Therefore, when we are speaking about poverty here, obviously what James is talking about is that poverty happens to be one of the major trials of the believers that James was addressing. 
And so that is the context here, all right? The trials that they were experiencing included poverty. Now, what does the Bible say here? James says, or James asked them to glory in that high position. They are to glory in that high position. What do you think James meant? Well, in other words, what he is saying here is that the poor are to count it a joy that they are given the privilege of God to suffer for Him. That is why notice what I mentioned to you at the beginning, the high position of poverty in Christ. What that means, obviously, is that when you go through poverty and it happens to be the will of God in your life, you are to use that particular situation or circumstance to be able to bring glory to God. So we are to see it as an opportunity to be able to glorify God so that as people watch us, they will be able to see that we have contentment. They are able to see good character. They're able to see our wonderful response, good attitudes that come out of us in spite of the circumstances that we go through. So again, we are to see it from that perspective. Now, God is actually, in this situation, giving the poor an occasion to submit to Him and also to worship Him in spite of those conditions. Now, remember the concept that we shared in so far as our trials are concerned. Life is really a test. Could you say to your neighbor, life is a test? Say to your other neighbor, life is a test. So when you and I go through trials, we are to be mindful that God is actually testing us. He is trying to find out if we will remain loyal to Him. He's trying to find out if we will remain faithful in spite of the circumstances that we are in. And that is why we have to have God at the back of our minds whenever we are going through various trials in our lives. And we need to be asking God, Lord, what are you teaching me at this particular time? What do you want me to learn? What are the gleanings that I can get out of this trial that I am going through? What is it that you want to shape in me? Are you trying to stretch my faith? Are you trying to increase my patience? Are you trying to make me learn contentment in my life? Those are the things that we are to be mindful of when you and I go through certain trials, specifically the trial of poverty. And so again, it provides us an opportunity to submit to God and worship God and to say to God, Lord, it does not matter what I go through. Whether I am feasting or I am fasting, I will exalt you nevertheless. And that is exactly the main goal of our lives. Whether we eat or drink, we should do everything for the glory of God. 
That, in effect, is the reason why God created us. He created us to bring glory to His holy name. Now, when you have this kind of a perspective, you will even be able to see poverty as a gift. Let me just say it again. You will even be able to see poverty as a gift. In the same way, by the way, that riches are a gift from the Lord. And the whole point is this. If you and I live in the sphere of life in Christ, we are to embrace everything as a way or as a vehicle by which we can honor and revere God in so far as our responses are concerned. Now, if you take a look at the Scriptures, you will find that, for example, marriage is considered as a gift. But not only that, if you take a look at Paul, he was likewise saying that celibacy or single blessedness is actually a gift. So it doesn't really matter whether you're married or you are not married. For as long as you are in Christ, you are to see that situation you are in as a gift from the Lord. In fact, if you take a look at the book of Acts, it's interesting to discover that when the early Christians suffered for their faith, they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the name of the Lord. And that is why I don't know if there are some people who are in a dire situation of need at this point in your life. You're having difficulty in trying to meet ends or make ends meet. But I'd like to tell you this. Use this as a vehicle to glorify and exalt God in your life. And that is why, once again, notice the difference in the perspective that James is trying to bring in this particular passage. He says, you are to glory in that high position. So again, if you are in that position, it is a high position. Why? Because it is a platform, it is a venue, it is an occasion, it is an opportunity for you to be able to glorify God. And herein you find the difference between the mindset of, a, of an unbeliever and the mindset of a Christian. A Christian always thinks with God in mind. A Christian always thinks how to respond, how to react in relation to his relationship with God Almighty. And that is how life should be for all of us. And by the way, that's the only way you and I can truly experience joy and peace in our lives. When we have this conscious awareness of God 24-7 in our lives. When we see God in every detail of our lives, whether it be big or small, God is there. And so if God is there, how do I respond? Now, a little word of note, however. This is not to say that all suffering, including that of poverty, are from God. 
Some suffering that we experience happens to be a consequence of our sins or a consequence of our disobedience or a consequence of our compromise. So it is here that we are given the opportunity to ask God, Lord, is this suffering that I am in as a result of my sin? And if it is as a result of my sin, what do I need to do? Obviously, all I need to do is repent. And when I repent, God might remove those consequences of my disobedience. Now, on the other hand, it is also possible that some of the suffering that you are experiencing may be as a result of the oppression of Satan. God is alive, but you need to be reminded as well that Satan likewise is alive. And clearly, his goal for mankind is to destroy mankind. John chapter 10 says, he comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. However, if those things are not true, if it is not satanic oppression, if it is not as a result of disobedience on your part, you are to see poverty as a gift from God. Then you are to be joyful. You have to have a joyful faith in spite of the circumstances. Now, this is the response that God is asking from you. So once again, I'm not sure if there are some people here right now who are in a dire situation of need. And God is saying, you might not realize this, God is saying, you are blessed. That's what it means here when it says, you are to glory in your high position. You are to see yourself as blessed. You are to see yourself in a high position. Once again, the reason is, it is an opportunity for you to be able to glorify God in spite of your circumstances. And that is something that I would like us to be able to develop. Because oftentimes, our rejoicing merely depends on good circumstances. But you know what? That's not the reality of this world that we are living in. Some people say that life is unfair. And the truth of the matter is, indeed, in some sense, life indeed is unfair. But the question is, how do you respond? How do you respond to life's adversities? How do you respond when things do not go your own way? And this is where our character would be tested. And as believers in Christ, we are called by God to be overcomers. We are called by God to be victors. We are called by God to be more than conquerors. So that we are not in any way defeated by any situation whatsoever. But rather, we are able to overcome because of beautiful and wonderful responses that we make. Now, if the rich man, I'm sorry, if the poor man is to rejoice in his high position in poverty in Christ, what is the rich man to glory in? Which brings us to the second point in verse 10. 
It says here, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass, it will pass away. Now at first blush, it seems like God is anti-rich. Now I'd like to be able to say to you, God is not against rich people. You are not to see this verse as God being anti-rich. Because a lot of times when you read this, and you don't really study it, you don't meditate on it, when you do not process what the verse is really trying to say, you might begin to think that God is against rich people and He only favors poor people. I'd like to be able to say that is not true. So the question, of course, that we need to be asking is, why should the rich man be glorying in his humiliation? Now, Again, what is important here is we need to first of all define what does God mean or what does James mean when he speaks about humiliation? What is the humiliation of the rich man? And you will find out later on that the, the rich man's humiliation is likewise the humiliation of the poor man, which I will show you in a bit. But first of all, let me establish this. God is not against rich people. In fact, God is the one who is in the business of making some people rich. Let me give you some examples. For example, if you take a look at Genesis chapter 24, 34 to 35, it is made clear to us that it was God who made Abraham wealthy. So, is God being anti-rich? No. If God was against riches, then He would not have made Abraham rich. Not only that, we have another example. We have the example of Joseph the dreamer. From the favorite son at the age of 17, what happened to him? He was sold by his own brothers to become a slave. And later on, he was framed up with a sin, with a crime that he did not commit. So he landed in jail. So he languished in jail for many, many years. His suffering as a slave and as a prisoner actually lasted for 13 years. But at the age of 30, all of a sudden, beyond imagination, something that he totally did not expect and something that must have come as a pleasant shock in his life, he became the prime minister of Egypt, just like that. He became second in command to Pharaoh. What does that tell you once again? Who was the one who put Joseph in that lofty and high position? It was God. And together with that position, obviously, it came with riches, with wealth, with prosperity. So once again, we see in the example of Joseph that God is not against riches. Now, last example, we find King Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 23. Again, we see here that it was God who made Solomon so wealthy that he amassed so much silver and so much gold. He was able to build a grand palace 
He was able to build a grand temple for Yahweh. He was able to do that because of the riches and the wealth that he had and because the nation of Israel had prospered so much. Again, what does that tell you? God is not against riches. So, if God is not against riches, what is he against? Well, obviously, what he is against is a wrong attitude towards riches. And that is something that we need to correct. And by the way, some of you are thinking, well, Pastor Mel, this does not concern me. And perhaps the reason why you're thinking that is because you're not a millionaire or you're not a billionaire. And so you're thinking, this verse does not apply to me. Well, let me just tell you, this applies to most of us. Why do I say that? Because in the Bible, when the Bible talks about the rich, it is not really talking about the millionaires and the billionaires. But rather, when the Bible talks about those who are rich, it is talking about those people who have more than what they need. Let me say it again. They have more than what they need. In other words, if you have savings in your bank, listen well, you are considered wealthy according to the Scriptures. So how many here have savings accounts? Raise your hands. Okay, nobody wants to be known. I will not embarrass you. I'm sure you have. But here's the thing. If you have a savings account, if you have more than what you need, the Bible is addressing you. You are the ones that the Bible is saying is rich. So don't say, this does not concern me. If you are able to save a little money over, above, beyond what you need, then the Bible says you are rich. And I would like to assume that in this congregation, maybe at least 90% of us, according to the Scriptures, may be labeled as rich. So this verse is for you, all right? This verse is for you. Tell your neighbor, this verse is for you. All right. Okay? So no excuses. Now, what does this verse teach? Once again, let's read verse 10. It says, And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass, he will pass away. This verse is teaching the correct attitude that rich believers are to have, and that is to embrace, listen well, to embrace the fleeting nature of riches. Embrace the fleeting nature of riches because, after all, the rich as well as the poor will pass away. Are you listening? In other words, our lives have an expiration date. And because our lives have an expiration date, we have to realize that whatever riches we can accumulate in this life, we cannot bring it to the next life. That's the point of James here. We are to glory in that, that our lives are fleeting, our lives are temporary. 
And therefore, we are not putting our hope in this world, but we are putting our hope in the next life. That's the point of James. So if we are putting our hope in this world and in this life, we are making a huge mistake. That is not what God wants. That is not what James wants to happen. And that is why we have to have a correct attitude in so far as money and riches are concerned. If you really think about it, what do we really have to hope in this world? The Bible actually gives us a pessimistic view of this world that we are living in. Pessimistic only in the sense that is, it is under the sun and in this dispensation, according to the scriptures, in the last days, difficult times will come. And that is why, again, we have to have this realization. If you put your hope in this world, you're putting your hope in something that will not last because in 1 John, it says that heaven and earth will pass away. This world that we are living in will pass away. That's why you have in the scriptures new heavens and a new earth. That is why in the book of Romans, it says the earth is groaning for its redemption. Earth is waiting for its own resurrection. We will not be the only ones that will be resurrected. Earth creation will also be resurrected. And if earth will be resurrected, what does that mean? Earth is dying. That's what it is saying. Earth is decaying. Earth is under a curse. So if your hope is in this world, you're making a terrible mistake. And think about what's happening all over the world. There is no place in this world that is perfectly safe. You can be in Belgium in an airport and an explosion takes place. You can be in France, maybe in a market, and you can be run over with a truck. You can be walking along London Bridge and you can be run over and be stabbed in that area. You can be riding the tube in London, which happened several years back, and an explosion takes place. The daughter of Pastor Ding was about to ride that tube and she was late five minutes. Thank God she was late. Because after five minutes, there was a huge explosion. You go to Germany, you can meet up with a terrorist in a train. Wherever you go, there is really no place that is actually safe. You can be in Orlando in a, in a bar or in a nightclub, and you can be shot at. My whole point is this. It is utter foolishness on our part to put our hope in this world and in our earthly existence. That's the point that James is trying to make. That is what he meant when he said, the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. That's what it means. 
And Job had the right attitude which all rich people should emulate. In the book of Job, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. So notice the correct attitude that Job had. He realized that everything that he had was from the hand of the Lord. So if everything comes from the hand of the Lord, he is free to take it back from us. And if he does so, it is not being unjust on the part of God. Our responsibility is to respond in the same way that Job responded in the midst of his adversity. It says here, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. That is a correct attitude. Now, this is the right attitude that rich believers are to have. And again, when we talk about rich, it's not talking about millionaires and billionaires. It's talking about people who have more than what they need. So if you have a savings account or if you have extra money in the house, you are rich in so far as the Bible is concerned. So this is something that relates to you. Now, here's what God is against. God is against the rich who do not acknowledge Him in their lives. They do not thank God for their wealth, when in fact, here's what the Bible says in the book of Deuteronomy. It is God who gives us the power to become wealthy. Say that with me, please. It is God. Say it louder, please. It is God who gives us the power to become wealthy. God is the one who makes us wealthy. The Bible says every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. And therefore, what God is merely asking from us is that we be thankful, that we be grateful for all the blessings that we receive. And secondly, that we might become good stewards as well. Now, a rich believer with the right attitude understands that money can never satisfy. Say this to your neighbor, please. Money can never satisfy. You don't sound so convincing, do you? Say it again. Money does not satisfy. I think I know what's going through your mind. I think you're saying money does not satisfy, but I want it. Well, let me just tell you, it will never, ever satisfy the deepest longings and needs of your soul. Let me just share to you the peril of riches. The peril of accumulating wealth was illustrated in a story that was told by Dr. R. R. Brown, the genial octogenarian. He told about a man who confided to his pastor, and I'm going to put this on the screen. This is what he said. When I had $50,000, I was happy. But now, 
I have $500,000, I am miserable. All right? So what does that tell you? That money cannot satisfy. And in fact, we have the fleeting nature of money. Sometimes you have much, sometimes you have very little. And this week, a lot of people got a scare, right? For some depositors of a major established bank, which suffered a glitch, uh, people experienced a few days of anxiety and worry. Some people who had a lot of money in the bank, all of a sudden, it disappeared. And some people who had no money, all of a sudden, they became billionaires. And this is where a lot of people were actually tested. A lot of people became anxious and became worried. But you know, it gives us a very powerful lesson. And the lesson is, money is fleeting. Amen? And that is why we are not to put our hope in our riches. Unbelievers themselves have experienced the fact that money never satisfies. Let me share to you the story of Emperor Nero, who was responsible for the killing of so many Christians. You know what he wanted to do with Rome? He wanted to renovate the entire city. So guess what he did? He burned the whole city of Rome, and he blamed it on Christians. And that is why the Christians were persecuted. They were killed. They were imprisoned. They were devoured. They were beheaded. They suffered a lot. Now, Emperor Nero reveled in earthly possessions, and he set his heart upon them. From his splendid throne as the ruler of the Roman Empire, he commanded that gorgeous porches a mile long be built around the palace. The ceiling of his banquet hall was equipped at great expense with hidden showers worth millions of dollars. And his mules were shod with silver. Whenever he traveled, a thousand chariots accompanied him, and he refused to wear, listen well, he refused to wear the same garment twice, no matter how expensive it was. So he was more than emildific. Taxing the people unmercifully, he was able to pay extravagant sums of money to anyone who could devise new methods of entertaining him. Yet with all his riches and splendor, he was a peevish, gloomy, dissatisfied man. The immense wealth he had amassed could not satisfy his soul. Guess what happened? He took his own life. He committed suicide. Not all the wealth of the Roman Empire could satisfy the emptiness and the vacuum in his soul. He killed himself. And I'd like to multiply the stories that we find. The number of people who commit suicide after experiencing fame or fortune of worldly success is astonishing. Multi-millionaire George Vanderbilt committed suicide 
by throwing himself outside a hotel window. Lester Hunt, twice governor of Wyoming before being elected to the U.S. Senate, ended his own life. Actress Marilyn Monroe, writer Ernest Hemingway, and athlete Tony Lazeri represent a host of highly influential and popular people who became so disenchanted with earthly success that they took their own lives. And even right now, we have so many stories of people who were suspected of committing suicide by doing an overdose of drugs. You have Elvis Presley, you have Michael Jackson. They were all suspected of killing themselves inadvertently. But you see, what is the lesson here? The lesson here is money will never satisfy your soul. That is why the glorying of the rich person is not in the fact that he has a lot of money in his hands. The glorying of the rich person is that he knows that what he has, he will eventually lose, and so he is looking to the next life. That is what his mind is focused on. It says here in this verse, like flowering grass, he will pass away. Not all the wealth in the world can prevent you from dying. You can, you can buy all the multivitamins in the world. You can buy all the antioxidants in the world. You can buy all the herbal medicine in the world. You could have your monthly executive checkup or your yearly executive checkup. You can hire the best doctors. You can build your own hospital, by the way. But none of that will prevent you from dying. And that is why we thank God that our hope is not in this life. Our hope is in the next life. Amen? That is where our hope is. And that is why Jesus promised to us, as He rose from the dead, He will likewise resurrect each and every believer. And friends, let me just tell you, not all the precautions and, and, and whatever you do in so far as money is concerned will secure your life perfectly. Let me tell you another story, the story of a successful artist by the name of J.H. Zorthian. His murals adorn the walls of many buildings in America. Becoming somehow obsessed with the safety of his own children, he resolved to eliminate every possible accident. You know what he did? Listen well. He dropped all work to personally supervise procedures, ensuring every perfection that would guarantee safety for his own children. The family house that he built was on top of a mountain so that there would be very few cars away from the busy streets. And then all throughout that place, you have signs saying, children playing. It's plastered everywhere. The fence play yard 
was situated 50 feet away from any possible car. Only one conceived danger left or remained, and that was if Zordian happened to back up his vehicle. There was a possibility he might accidentally um, hit his children. So you know what he did? He built a roundabout, what we call as rotonda. He built a roundabout just so he did not have to back up from the garage so that he would not run over his child. So he was having that constructed. Problem was, there was heavy rain. And because of the heavy rain, construction stopped for that roundabout. A day came, he had to back out from his garage. It so happened, his 18-month-old boy came running over at the back, and he did not notice, and he ran over and crashed his own son to death. What am I trying to say? Well, that's a very sobering story. If you put your hope in this life, if you try to build security fences in your life, ultimately, your life is really in the hands of God. And that is why, where do you run? You don't run to wealth. You don't run to money. You don't run to success and fame. Where do you run? You run to the name of the Lord. Amen? Because He is our refuge. He is our rock. Continuing, it says in verse 11, For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. And the Bible says, for the sun rises with a scorching heat and wind. What James was talking about, what he was referencing, obviously, was the Palestinian desert sun. And grass and plants do not last long under the heat of the Middle Eastern sun. And the point, again, is that it speaks of the brevity of the rich man's life. The brevity of life, which should make him realize his utter poverty before God. It says, withers, falls off, destroyed. This is figurative language which speaks of the certainty of the death of the rich. So here's the thing. How do I respond? How do I treat the wealth that God gives to me? First of all, with an attitude of thankfulness and gratitude, thanking God, Lord, thank you for the blessings you give in my life. Secondly, how do you respond to the wealth and the blessing that God gives to you? Be a good steward of the manifold grace of God. There is a reason why God makes you rich. There is a reason why you have more than what you need. Now, what exactly would the purpose be? Again, you will have to go to the Scriptures. Take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, please, and following. And this is what it says. 
It says, now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, what is the subject matter being discussed here by Paul? He is obviously discussing about the subject matter of giving. This has to do with the work of the Lord. And again, Paul is saying that if you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. If you sow abundantly, you will reap abundantly. That is to be the attitude we are to have. Notice verse 7. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. For God loves whom? God loves a cheerful giver. So you want to know? Whom God loves, well, He loves a cheerful giver. That is the attitude of a rich person. That should be the attitude of a rich believer in Christ. Every rich believer in Christ should be a cheerful giver. And again, let me remind you, we're not talking about millionaires or billionaires here. We're talking about people who have more than what they need. God wants you being a cheerful giver. And notice what verse 8 says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you. What does that mean? What is this grace? This is not spiritual or supernatural grace that is being talked about here. What is being talked about here is material grace. In other words, God... Is, doesn't find it difficult to empower you with wealth. God doesn't find it difficult to bless you with riches. Money is never a problem with God. And so here's what it says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you. So what is this teaching? This is actually teaching about riches, about wealth, about prosperity. So again, what does this tell you? God is not against prosperity per se. God is not against riches per se. Because if God were against riches, why is it that the Bible says that God is able to make all grace abound to you? Notice it says, so that, and this is the purpose statement, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. So here's the reason why God blesses you. Here's the reason why you have more than what you need. Because He wants you to have an abundance of every good deed or an abundance for every good deed. In other words, God wants you to use whatever surplus you have, whatever excess you have for His own glory. And again, I think this should include all of us. Notice it says, verse 9, as it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Watch verse 10. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing 
and increase the harvest of your righteousness, you will be enriched. Notice the adjectives that are used here. Supply, multiply, increase, enriched. What does that speak about? That speaks about God providing over above what you need. Amen? That is why money is never a problem. In the book of Hebrews, it says, He will never leave you nor forsake you. And a lot of times, we use it for a lot of things. But guess what the context in the book of Hebrews is? It's talking about money. And so, the point there of the author of Hebrews is, money is never a problem. He will never leave you in so far as money is concerned. He will never desert you in so far as money is concerned. And that is why, again, we go back to Philippians 4, which says, And my God shall supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. It's not a problem with God. But the problem sometimes is the purpose statement of our lives. Sometimes the purpose statement of our lives is, well, I just want more money. In the same way that some of us are collecting likes on our Facebook page, some of us are collecting money, and the more it increases, the more happy, so to speak, we become. And that's a wrong attitude. Because again, the purpose statement is not for ourselves, but for the sake of the name. Notice what it says, verse 11. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality. That's another purpose statement. For all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. Let me share to you an example of a man whom God prospered. And I will tell you the reason why God prospered him. Perhaps the man's name is quite popular. His name is Henry Hines, who grew an international food empire. The small beginning progress to 100,000 acres of farmland and 26 factories. Heinz Foods of the 57 varieties fame captured the United States as well as Britain or England or the United Kingdom. How did it happen? How did God prosper this man, Henry? Here's why. For 25 years, he promoted the gospel in the United States and Japan by supporting missionaries. Let me say it again. For 25 years, he promoted the gospel in the United States and Japan by supporting missionaries. That's why God blessed him. And let me tell you this. Sometimes the reason why we are not blessed enough is because we have the wrong purpose statement. We're simply wanting to amass or accumulate wealth. That's a wrong purpose statement. 
The purpose statement here in the scriptures is we should receive the blessings of God so that we could be used by God as a channel of blessing to others. When God knows that, when God knows that money is not your idol, when God knows that money is not your God, guess what He is going to do? He is going to pour out blessing upon blessing upon blessing in your life. Why? Because He knows you're not selfish. He knows that your desire is to glorify God. And when you have that mindset, God will not mind sharing His wealth and blessings to you because He knows it's in good hands. It's in good hands. And the question is, are we being good stewards of the manifold blessings that God gives to us? And sometimes it's funny. I mean, we always say, you know what? I recall one person kept on saying, I have no money, I have no money. Then the following week, you discover this person has bought a brand new car. And I'm thinking, the person just said that he had no money or she had no money. And then all of a sudden, after a week, a car. A lot of us are saying, I don't have the money. But then all of a sudden, the following week, brand new cell phone. Hello? Everybody's silent. Hello? 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 Are you alive, awake, alert? God is talking to you. Listen. We always have our excuses. Here's what the Bible says. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6 and following. It says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Listen well. Look at verse 7. And this is all throughout the Bible. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. Have you ever seen a baby being born holding on to an ATM? Amen? You don't see a baby being born with an ATM. So this is so powerful. This is just a realization of what is. This, is. this is God telling us, well, this is it. This is reality as it is. You need to accept it. You need to embrace it. Verse 8, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction for the love of money. Notice it doesn't say money is evil, but it says for the love of money. That's the problem. Not money itself, but the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith. Some have backslidden, the Bible is saying, and pierced themselves with many griefs, pain, sorrow, misery, tragedy. Let the other speak. 
this truth. Talk to Michael Jackson. Talk to Elvis Presley. Talk to Marilyn Monroe. Talk to Ernest Hemingway. Talk to George Vanderbilt. Talk to Zorthian. Talk to these men. Talk to these women. And they will tell you what the Bible says is right. Amen? The wisdom of God is perfect. Amen? There are no mistakes. So what do I do? What do we do? Verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Again, bringing you back to that glitch that happened. The uncertainty of riches. But where do we put our trust? But on God. Now, what, God, what is God able to do? But on God, listen well, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Amen? So we have no problem. Amen? There is no problem. If we just have the right mind, the right heart, the right attitude, the right response, a proper perspective in life, a right understanding of stewardship, there is no problem to talk about. In so far as our needs are concerned, God is committed to supply our needs. And it says here, He will richly supply us with all things. Not only that, to enjoy. Amen? Give, give the Lord a big hand, please. So God is not even opposed to our enjoyment. That is why if you take a look at the book of Ecclesiastes, and if you have a proper perspective of the book of Ecclesiastes, having the fear of God, we are told in the book of Ecclesiastes that we are to enjoy life and enjoy the gifts that God gives to us. God is not opposed to our enjoyment. What God is against is idolatry, the worship of money. That is what God is against. But to enjoy it, God is not opposed to that. He wants His children to enjoy, but not to the point that they worship on the altar of success and money. Because you cannot serve both God and mammon. You cannot do that. Verse 18, here's what we do. Instruct them to do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. Why? Verse 19, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. You know what you're doing when you are giving to the work of the gospel? When you are being generous and ready to share? Listen well, you are making a deposit in heaven. 
And friends, in heaven, there is no glitch. Are you listening? In heaven, there is no glitch. In heaven, you do not have to withdraw. All the riches of God are there for you. Amen? We are blessed. Amen? We are blessed. Think about that, believers in Christ. Here on earth, all our needs would be met by God. God will richly supply us with all things that we need so we don't have to worry. But aside from that, as we invest for the work of the gospel, we are actually depositing in heaven and we are awaiting the glorious rewards that God is going to give to His sons and His daughters. Hallelujah. Amen. We are blessed. Hallelujah. We are blessed. I want you to see that. I want you to see the glory of this life that God has given to us. That is why James was saying you need to glory in that humiliation. You are to glory in the fact that life is temporary and there's more to come. Amen? There's more to come. Greater things are still to come for us sons and daughters of God. Hallelujah. Amen. Greater things are yet to come. So we end with verse 12. And this time, this addresses both the rich man and the poor man who should persevere under trial. Verse 12. It says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. This verse teaches us that blessedness, listen well, has nothing to do with being rich or being poor. Blessedness has to do with persevering in our trials whatever our station in life. For the poor people, your trial might be your poverty. And for those of you who are rich, again, those who have, of you who have more than what you need, your trial might be your riches, how you dispense of it, how you become a good steward. And if you persevere in whatever trial you are going through, you receive two rewards. First is you are approved. It comes from the Greek word dokimos, which was used to describe the successful testing of precious metals and coins. It referred to the process of testing and also the consequent approval of the tested object as genuine. You know, in factories, you have what is called as quality control, right? And that is why sometimes there are some products that are rejected, which some of us, of course, want to buy in the outlets because it's cheaper. But you see, if you're going to look at the genuine article, it's going to be more expensive. And the, the picture here actually 
is something that God looks at and God sees the life, God sees the response, and His mark of approval is on that person. And the result, of course, is receiving rewards. Secondly, aside from being approved, he receives the crown of life. Crowns are rewards that we receive in eternity. They may be literal crowns. They may just be symbolic of whatever rewards God would give to us. Remember, Paul had the third heaven experience, and he said, there are no words to describe eternity. So I'd like to end by saying this. I believe the paradox of the riches of poverty and the poverty of riches has been made clear to us based on the book of James. If we are poor, then we know that we should rejoice in this test that God has given to us. If we are rich, meaning we have more than what we need, it is a test as to whether we would glorify God and at the same time be good stewards, understanding that naked we came into this world, naked shall we go back. May God cause both the poor and the rich of this church to persevere in that trial or in whatever trial you're in that you might be approved of God and that you might receive the crown of life. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we, Lord, we just want to thank you and bless you for today. I believe, Lord, you have addressed every member, every person in this hall right now. You have addressed those who are in dire need, those who are poor, that they may glory in that high position because you have allowed them this period or this season of difficulty as it provides an opportunity for them to submit to you and exalt your holy name. I also believe that you've addressed those of us who are rich not necessarily the millionaires and billionaires, but Lord, those who have more than enough. And our prayer for those of us who are rich is that we would honor you and acknowledge that every good and perfect gift comes from you. That you are the one who empowers us to become wealthy. May we also be found as good stewards as we glory in our own humiliation, knowing that we will one day pass away and therefore we should make use of the blessings that you give to us. We thank you for today. We thank you for the opportunity to give our tithes, our grace gifts, and our offerings. And Lord, as you had promised in your word, may you enrich, may you multiply, may you supply, 
your riches for us so that, so that we might honor and glorify your holy name. Whatever has been achieved today, we will give you back the glory, the praises, and the thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's uh, give the Lord a big hand. Shall we rise from our seats?